Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Ruler podcast for issue 67. I'm Ian Parkinson. In a moment, I'll be at the Rafa Cycle Club in London, catching up with Photographer of the Year, Marshall Kappel. Later, I'll be talking to some of the riders and the manager of the Drops women's cycling team. We'll also have the results of the last podcast competition and a new one for you. First, though, let's go to Spitalfields. So we're outside the uh, Rafa Cycle Club in Spitalfields in London, which is celebrating its first year. You can probably hear some people enjoying themselves inside. We're stuck outside, uh, not quite in the cold, but kind of in the cold. And I am joined by uh, Marshall Kappel, Cycling Media Awards Photographer of the Year. Welcome, Marshall. Thank you. And uh, Ian Cleverley, Editor of Rouleur, uh, which coincidentally at the same awards was the Magazine of the Year. Indeed, thank you. On the tour. It was only, in fact, the podcast uh, that let us down. We were nominated, but unbelievably, they gave the prize to someone else. I know, I know. I, the award system is messed up. What can I say? I don't want to get Donald Trump about it, but I no. suspect that there was some... <laughs> some fraud. Yeah, there were yeah. some irregularities in the voting. Clearly, and we'll, clearly. And we'll leave it at that. Marshall, congratulations. You're, uh, Thank you. Cycling Photographer of the Year. Um, were you expecting that? Uh, no, I wasn't at all, actually. I missed it last year when I was also nominated and won, and this year I thought I would come and see, so it was all a surprise. How did you um, first get into um, both photography and cycling, yeah, cycling photography? Uh, photography since I was very young. I mean, like probably a lot of people. My father gave me a camera when I was 11, started taking pictures and all that. Went off to have a whole other career in marketing and branding kind of stuff at big companies. Um, but was always interested in cycling. Raced a lot until I was in my 20s. Stopped and then came back to it around 40. But through photography. So just went to Liège Best on Liège in 2014. Dan Martin crashed in the last 100, 200 meters right in front of me. And I thought, this is fun. There was tons of adrenaline. It was just a, it was a great race. Not for him, but for me. And at what point then did you think, actually, this is going to be my, my life? That night. So actually, I had a whole other website up. True story. Uh, you know, portraits, kind of fashion-y stuff. Got back to Paris where I live. That morning, I erased everything and just put one picture up. And I think I wrote to everybody, but I think I wrote to you, Ian, and said, look, I'm taking cycling pictures. What do you think? Yeah, I get a lot of those emails, yeah. but, um, but not many actually hit the mark. So so what was different about Marshall? Because I, I imagine you do get hundreds of would-be cycling photographers contacting. It, it, it's so hard to um, put your finger on it. I really can't explain it, but, but the number of... Uh, photographers that do contact me that I just look at and go yep seen that one yeah yeah oh it's that one 
seen that before. And uh, Marshall had something that's like, okay, that's, you've nailed it. You know, you, you just, you've you captured whatever the je ne sais quoi is to be poncy and French about it. And, and I, I seriously, I cannot put my finger on it. But you knew it when you saw that picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also feel, I mean, speaking about myself a little bit, but ruler is a little different. I mean, as even we've discussed, people come from very different backgrounds. We've all been in different fields before. And I think that helps bring something different to what we do creatively with cycling. Because it's not just the standard shot. It feels different. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, are you actually making a living as a cycling photographer now? Barely, yes. <laughs> yes. Trying, yes. Yeah, I think I, I will need to do other things, for sure, other sports. But I will stay in sports, for sure. You shoot entirely on digital, do you? Now I do, yes. But previous to cycling, I was still shooting a lot of film. Um, what's the difference as a photographer, do you think? Well, digital is super fast, super easy. You can manipulate anything you want uh, almost instantly. Film, you know, you're waiting. It's a lot more expensive. There's a lot more involved in the, the whole process of getting the picture. Do you lose anything by digital, do you know? I'm not a photographer, but I'm, I'm intrigued to know. Yeah, I, I would say yes, actually. I mean, for what we're doing, maybe not. Maybe it's not perceived by the general public. But yes, there's a certain... Uh, tactile feel to the pictures that's missing you know it's a it's not even just the graininess it's there's a certain depth that just isn't there i imagine as ian has suggested there are a lot of people probably hundreds of people who think well being a cycling photographer must be the greatest job because you get to travel all around the world you go to interesting places you take photographs of bikes. that's all true that is true yes yes it is very fun and you know the places it's taken me are amazing and they're not the standard places from Langkawi to Saitama. It wasn't Tokyo, it was Saitama. You know, there's, it's not necessarily all the big cities where any other sport might take you to Barcelona, New York, Los Angeles, whatever it is. So even where races go is through smaller towns that have a little more interest to them, I'd say. My career, if you like, has been making radio programs. And now uh, everybody has an iPhone or the equivalent. Everybody's got GarageBand. Everyone can make radio programs, everyone can do podcasts. Uh, I imagine it's even more so for you. Everyone's got an iPhone, everyone's got Instagram filters, everyone's a photographer. Yes. What's the difference? That's uh, a great question. I mean, I contemplate it all the time. I mean, anyone with an, even an iPhone, let alone very easy access to cameras that cost thousands of dollars, um, it's very easy to take a great picture. Also because cycling's free. You just walk out your front door and you shoot the people coming down the street. I think there's a dedication to it. There's a knowledge of cycling and cyclists, the lifestyle, the culture. I don't know, maybe even, even though I'm not at all an athlete anymore, um, you know, some, something to do with the mentality that makes it very more accessible if you're doing it professionally. And also I think like having done what I did before in fashion with portraits, I feel very comfortable with people in general, so it's easy for me to go and be with Peter Sagan or whoever it is and just take his picture. When you're um, selling your photography, selling your work uh, to someone, say, other than Ruler, how do you quantify that? How do you quantify why it's worth people paying for you rather than just you know readers uh, who send stuff in? I haven't figured it out yet. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. When you do, let me know. Yes, yeah. I will let you know. <laughs> Ian, what do you think, What, from your point of view, 
what's the difference? Well, you know, what, what marks out a really good photographer compared to the hundreds of people who take pictures of bike races? Well, I, I, I almost refused my earlier answer. I actually don't know other than if I see it and I like it. I was uh, answering somebody who, who had uh, pitched a, a written piece earlier today. And, and I said, I know this is really difficult for you, but if I see something that, that, that I like, don't ask me to spell it out for you or tell you what, what that pitch is. If I see it and I like it, I'll go for it. I, I can't be too prescriptive about it. Um, and the, the photographers we've got in this issue, um, you've got Tim Cohn and Olaf Unverzart, who, who have both been uh, with us not since day one, but since the very early days of the magazine. You've got Marshall, you've got Benedict Campbell, you've got Robert Wyatt, Ballant Hanvas. You know, it's, it's a fantastic lineup of photographers, and, and it's probably the best lineup we've had for quite a few issues. And I, I'm just so proud to be able to work with these people. It makes my job easy, you know? It makes my job easy. I, the hard bit is working out what to leave out, not what to put in. Do you set out on a day photographing a bike event with a clear idea of what you want? Not at all. I've tried and it just doesn't work for me. Some people do. Some of my colleagues, they look at Google Earth, they plot the course, they know very well what they're going to do, or they've been doing it for years, so they know where they're going. I generally and honestly usually go to the start and then see where I might be able to cut it off. Always drive ahead of the race so I can, if I see, oh, that looks interesting, stop there, find a vantage point, shoot, and then continue. But not, not really. And I at least like to think... Maybe I'll say a little less so now, but when I started, really focusing on people. So a lot of the portraits after the race, before the race, and even less so the race itself, so the things around it. What would your advice be to some of those thousands of people listening to this, reading the magazine, who want to get into cycling photography? Probably to find inspiration somewhere else. But what I mean by that is, you know, reference other things in photography and in other industries and then bring something new to what we're not doing. Ian, I remember there was a story um, a few years ago, um, which I, I, I wasn't connected with the magazine at the time, but I think there was, uh, you were using a picture by Henri Cartier-Bresson on the cover and there was a lot of discussion about whether you could crop the photograph, which it had to be cropped to go on the cover, um, because famously Henri Cartier-Bresson never cropped his photographs. Um, do you remember that? Were you involved in that at all? Uh, I did. No, that was that was uh, <clears throat> that was guys. That was guys' gig. My, my predecessor, so I, I didn't have to uh, get involved. In and yeah, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't. I would not be responsible for cropping a Cartier press on but you know needs must it's interesting I never cropped when I shot film or Polaroid but now I do and so I, I actually associate it with digital photography not with not with uh, you know what we did before so that would be a dilemma to begin I would say Especially with, so you think Cartier Bresson. Bresson might be uh, using Photoshop and, and cropping? Were he alive? <laughs> of course today. he would. Of course he would. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. In issue sixty-seven, Marshall, you've got a, a fascinating sort of photo uh, story with some uh, words as well about a slightly bizarre trip to Japan that you've yes. just been on. Uh, tell us about that. What what was what was it all about? Well, as I wrote in the article, um, 
you know, I, I felt like I was going to Tokyo, to, to Japan. Um, but it was actually a northern kind of planned commercial suburb called Saitama. And it was just a little strange. We were in the hotel a lot, in the hotel lobby, in the convention center, very prescribed events around the whole quote-unquote race, which was actually about an hour long. And maybe it's just me being naive, but I kind of expected there to be a real a real race. Um, and what was the event? I guess the event was really just promoting cycling in Japan. It was some sort of UCI showcase. Yes, yes, yes. It, it's ASO. ASO, it? ASO, ASO okay, put yeah, it on. Yeah. And it's, you know, again, basically, it's an end-of-season party, but, yes. you know, and, and Japan pays, pays for, to, for the circus to come, to come over there. Yes. It's kind of odd. Yeah. I, I just felt like in a location like that, in a culture like that, there was a lot that we could have done, and especially visually, photographically, you know, as I keep saying to everyone, there was like the Banzai Museum, like just 10 minutes away walking, I don't know, but we just, we even took a bus between hotel and convention center. It was just all a little too planned. And for cycling, which for me is still very, you know, visceral, intimate, all these words, like you're so close to the riders and everything, it just felt too far apart. On the Rouleau podcast, we uh, have a, a discussion about our favorite photographs uh, from that issue. Uh, it's great to have an expert along. Um, what's your favorite photograph from issue 67? Well, I love the photograph of the Velitz brothers by Olaf, uh, just because I love the alternative focus. And actually, as I said before, like I'm always drawn to pictures of people. That to me, that's where the interest is. I love roads and all that, like everybody else, and it's beautiful. But you know, to me, if I even picture him being there, photographing them, talking to them, directing them, do this, don't do that, it's like a little game in a way, and it's fun. You know, it's it's fun. a very uncycling photograph, really, yes, isn't it? Yes, it, it yes, doesn't yeah, look yeah. like yeah. A, no. This a this could just be great picture. portraiture in in anything, the you know, whether they're cyclists or not. Um, so, and I love the way it's laid out in the magazine and everything. So, this to me is what is kind of what it's about. I think my favourite picture is yours um, from Saitama, the first um, picture in your feature. And I didn't know what it was. I, I couldn't work out. I, clearly, it's Very a human... Yeah. Old school ruler, there you go. Yeah. Didn't even know what it was. I didn't know what it was, but I liked it. Um, it's, uh, it would appear to be a man sorting his hair out. Yes. Is it Peter Sagan? It's Peter Sagan, yeah. And he was actually just putting his hair into a man bun in the middle of the lobby, and there was... I don't, literally maybe one halogen light, you know, somewhere above by the bar or something like that. But they had already dressed him in the, the robe. So it's, it makes quite an impression. It's a great photo. Thank you. Ian, what's your uh, favorite from the issue? Um, I'm going for Robert Wyatt's shot from the Tour of Britain, uh, which I... I I'm trying to work out where he was. He was probably on Clifton Suspension Bridge, but basically is shooting down into Avon Gorge, and there's a there's a peloton way way in the distance there somewhere. But um, it just it it's a gorgeous shot, and it it resonates with me because I'm a West Country boy, and Robert was uh, he's Bristol born and bred, so so it um, I I think he had a fair, a fair amount of sort of insider knowledge when he was shooting that, like, and it does help, does it? I think as a, as a photographer, if you actually kind of know, you know that that ground already, it goes a long way. And uh, that, I thought that was a cracking shot. And we'll be back at Spitalfield soon, not least for the all-important ruler competition. 
First, though, we're going back to the Ruler Classic event, where I got the chance to catch up with one of the most interesting teams on the women's race circuit, Drop Cycling. Their manager, Bob Varney, calls them the most professional amateur team in the world. I caught up with two of the riders, Laura Massey and Alice Barnes, and Bob Varney himself. The very initial idea was to give the young British riders that uh, didn't make the British track programme an opportunity to experience international road racing abroad. And we were going to do that by exposing them to races primarily in Belgium and uh, possibly France and Holland, perhaps once a month, and then uh, bringing back to the UK the skill set, the experiences from, from Europe and putting that into practice. Uh, the reality is very different. Um, we uh, got a little bit carried away and we ended up going to 10 countries over seven months and providing 71 days of racing, racing competitively from March right through to the end of September. And some pretty top-level racing in there, some, some pretty big races. Yeah, we were fortunate to get invited to six world tour races, uh, including the Tour of Britain, Tour of California, Tour of Flanders. Yeah, like the, you know, they're really top of the sport. Um, and we were really pleased how that went. I think at the end of the season, we were ranked 28th team in the world tour rankings. And what was the reaction to the, from the, to the more established teams when you, uh, when you turned up? I think that there was um, a degree of... Um, interest perhaps a little bit skeptical some of the teams on the very first race but largely i think it's been really positive certainly the reaction i've had from the other established uh, professional uh, riders uh, is one of appreciation of what we're doing and we're raising awareness to you know sort of um, uh, issues within the sport that have, that have not been raised before uh, salaries you know equality uh, equal prize money that sort of thing and we've had lots of support um, messages of support regarding that. Uh, in terms of the, the teams and the, the team kind of management, certainly personally, I've had a lot of support from people you know, like Danny Stam, who's DS of Bowles Dolmans, um, uh, uh, Coos Morehouse, uh, Rabobank, have always been really supportive of what we've done. I think that it's probably slightly different for the girls because obviously they've actually. Uh, they feel they don't want to let me down and they don't want to let themselves down or the team down. So they've been under way more pressure. But right from the start, you know, the very first race, the Grand Prix Samien, yeah, they were immense. You know, we had, uh, we had four of our six riders in the front group um, when the race split. 21 of the top riders in the world were only at 30, 40 seconds for a long, long time. And we had four in the chasing group of 50 or 60 riders. And it was 180 started that race. So I think when we finished that, we all realised that we did belong. There was a place in the peloton for us and we weren't out of place and it was all going to be OK. Uh, what's been your sort of impression of top level uh, women's pro cycling um, uh, as, a, as a newcomer? Uh, very positive. Um, really excited for next year. Really motivated to uh, work incredibly hard to get the girls a salary and to build on the progress we've made in year one. Um, which we're doing. Um, I think in terms of the race programme, I think if I could kind of share one thing, it would be the diversity of the racing. You know, the, the Tour of Flanders, 140k, 10 cobbled climbs, hundreds of thousands of spectators, very much the pinnacle of the sport, as the Tour of Britain uh, was. Um, you know, crowd-lined streets on every stage. You really did feel that you were at the top of the sport. You know, it was fantastic. But then the first race, Samian, there was probably 25 spectators out and it was a wet Wednesday afternoon um, and it didn't feel quite so glamorous. And we've done some races like that. 
I think there's a bit of disparity between the old school cycling nations and what we call the new world countries. Um, we went to Norway and that was incredibly well supported. Um, but some of the older uh, uh, sort of countries but with a bit more tradition with men cycling, I think are, are probably slower to embrace women cycling. And what ideally are your plans for 2017? We want to go up a level. We've introduced four or five new riders. We've kept our core group of 10 together. We've added some international flavours in areas where we feel that uh, that, uh, that can help uh, our riders progress. So we've got Susanna Zorzi with us today, who's uh, an Italian rider, um, who uh, is a Belgian classics rider, two years with Lotto. So the plan with her is to help her with uh, in the early season classics with Alice to go to the next level. And we have uh, instances of that. We have the Belgian time trial uh, national champion uh, and Sophie. So she's going to add some power to our team time trial squad. Uh, Martina Ritter, national champion from Austria, really good climber, GC rider. I feel that that's the way our girls can then move up to the next level. So um, on the bike, we certainly want to be more competitive. We want to be in the top 20 in the world, which I think we will be when the rankings are out in December. I think we'll get invited to more World Tour races. So we want to do the big races, Amstel Gold, the Age Baston, the Age. Uh, we want to do more than six. Off the bike, uh, we want to raise more money. We want the girls to get uh, a salary. I don't think we'll be truly professional in the true sense of the word where they're getting a sustainable living wage. But I think we'll be in that nice um, grey area of um, semi-pro, you know, where they're getting... Um, some money um, enabling the girls that are part-time to leave work and um, and actually train full-time which is going to be really important. Laura Massey your route into the team as it were mm. and the sort of stage you joined it at is slightly different to a lot of other riders what what led you to decide to join Drops this year? So I'd done the UK scene for the last few years and fit it around my work commitments so I'd been training in the evenings after work in my garage, um, requiring a lot of self-discipline and then just doing what I could at the weekends and then, you know, traveling to some races and just being a bit knackered when I got there, especially if I'd been traveling at work that week, etc. So it had always been niggling at me, but I wondered how much of a difference it would make if I, you know, did it properly um, and took a break from work and gave myself the time to just train properly but more importantly recover properly and eat and sleep etc so when I first was thinking about joining drops the UCI thing wasn't a definite I'm not even sure it was a question um and then when I found out that we would you know be going UCI then I thought this is the you know this is that gave me the impetus to do it this year and take the sabbatical and get six months off work so that I could just go to the races and give it a proper go and what was it like to the turning up at your first start line for a, uh, a world tour race yeah it was daunting I think you question you know what are you doing there and everyone else looks a lot smarter and slicker and seems to know what they're doing and not as nervous but you know I think everyone's kind of in the same boat um, but yeah it was definitely daunting and seeing some of the big names that you've put on a pedestal and you know can't really believe that you're in the same race as them but once it started then yeah it's just a bike race and you get on with it so you took a sabbatical. Is that going to continue, do you think? Are you going to stay uh, in full-time cycling next year? Um, so I'm back at work now. I went back in September at the end of the season. And, yeah, it's been a bit of a shock. <laughs> Just work meetings and, yeah, lots of stuff. And 
having to speak professionally and, and use my brain and, you know, do normal things and then fit in other stuff around work. So, yeah, it's been a bit of a challenge and just getting back to normality. Um, not too sure about next year. I think I will probably will do it again, but I need to think it through just a little bit more. And what's your uh, take on the sort of current state of women's cycling? You know, in some areas we see improvements, in some uh, areas we see some very positive moves, and in others it's th the familiar old story. Yeah, I think we've seen it um, more positively, but perhaps coming from the UK side of things. So I think previously it hasn't always been a full peloton in UK races, and perhaps the standard hasn't been as high, but this year... There was a lot of a lot of girls racing, um, and at the Lincoln Grand Prix, you know, there was a huge start list, and it had more women in the race than men. And I think similarly with the Tour Series, there was actually more women racing than men. So it's really stepped up at the national level. And in terms of the international scene, it was it was my first year, so I guess I didn't have much to benchmark it against. But there's definitely. Um, lots of excitement when new races do get added to the calendar and the girls like to see that progress is being made and steps are taking to go forward. What would you really like to see, I mean, you know, in the next couple of years? What would, what would be you know, an ideal position for you in terms of women's international racing? I mean, I think there's nice and um, more equality coming in with the classic, so it's starting to look a bit more like the men's, but... Um, as we were discussing earlier, it kind of depends, like what you know, what elements of the courses they use. Because if they just use the, you know, the less interesting bits, then it's not actually that much of a step forward. So I think you know, taking interesting parts um, of men equivalent races would be a good step forward, um, and lengthening some of the races. I know you can't lengthen them all, but um, and the Women's Tour of Britain is a great race, but I know there was talk whether that could be seven days, not five days, and yeah, it just kind of changes like that. We recognise it can't happen at once, but generally steps forward each year a good thing Alice Barnes what um, what was your sort of route into drops what what led you into the team um I didn't come in until the first of May I had talk with my coach I was quite stressed trying to uh balance mountain biking and road and with there not being an Olympic spot for mountain biking I tried to focus on the road and I didn't quite make the team I was a reserve for it and unfortunately didn't get to go and didn't get to race but Actually, I'm really grateful that my coach did make the suggestion because it's actually led me to sort of not a new future, but like new opportunities and possibilities. And I've really enjoyed the year, had some really great experiences and results. And yeah, it's made me really excited for next year. I've never done a full specific road season in winter. So yeah, I'm really excited for next year and hopefully can improve again because you've ridden and raced on the road before but this yeah. is like your first experience of top level um, road racing and your, your first full season at it or nearly full season at it I've always done road track mountain bike cyclocross time trial and it was when I started becoming a junior where I uh, took more of a focus towards mountain biking and went on the Olympic development program as British cycling and um, then I was on Mountain Bike Academy and I had a great few years. Uh, I was fifth at the Commonwealth Games, which was a great result for me and won as my first year senior. Um, I had seventh at my first under-23 World Championships and I don't regret doing mountain bike and I enjoyed it. I've had some great experiences, been to amazing places. Um, I do miss going to up in the mountains to the ski resorts for World Cups, but yeah, this year I've had 
some great races and I've really seen improvement. I think this is my third elite road world championships and each year I can see the improvements and I'm more confident in the role I can play for the team and supporting Lizzie and how she wants to ride and so yeah I'm really excited to do another hard winter of training and have more improvements to come out next year even stronger. And what would be your sort of target for next season do you think what would be your ambition if things go well? I love cobbles and the classics so I've not I did uh I think three of them I did, Het Newsblad and uh, the Het Haglin and um, the Samian and those were the only three races I did with the Classics and I'm really looking forward to doing a full season with a great uh, support behind me and riding for the other girls as well. I think that's something I'm really looking forward to, some early season tough races to really start the season and yeah, look forward to the Women's Tour again, that was an amazing race this year and I could tell that I was improving throughout the week, so with another year I hope I can go into the start stronger and, yeah, get some good results. So all that remains for us to do, I think, is the ruler competition. Um, I'm trying to remember what our last uh, question and our last prize was. Uh, last question was, um, Giovanni Battaglin, which team did he ride for when he won the 81 Giro d'Italia, which was Inoxpran. I hope I got the pronunciation right. Yep. Apologies if not. Um, Tis de Jong uh, won, and he wins a signed uh, Magli Rosa, signed by Signor Battaglin himself, which is um, it's a very nice jersey, actually. And uh, what's the competition this month? For this one, it is. Um, there's a big feature that we open the magazine with uh, on Stephen Roach, and Stephen Roach's brother also rode for Carrera at the same time that Stephen Roach did name Stephen Roach's brother. Wow. I remembered vaguely that Stephen Roach had a brother who was a rider, but I cannot remember his name. No, I, I, I had to look it up. <clears throat> so uh, there you go. Uh, I haven't worked out the prize yet, but it will be something fabulous. Okay. Well, we look forward to uh, hearing what that is on the next podcast. That's it from Issue 67. Uh, thanks to Marshall Kappel. Thank you. Thanks to Ian Cleverley. Thank you. Um, thanks to the uh, Rafa Cycling Club in uh, Spitalfields in London for hosting us. Uh, we'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.